You're listening to Faith Assembly of God Online, a recording of our weekly service. Thanks for joining with us, a place where hope and reality converge. I, um, I'm sure every single person here has a favorite color, unless you're indecisive and you have a couple favorite colors. But most people have a favorite color. For me, my favorite color was blue growing up, and it was the, uh, the color of choice. I don't know if it was the predictable color. You know, it was the, uh, the boy's color or whatever it was, but I loved blue, and it was my favorite color. It became even more my favorite color when I met my wife and her blue eyes and all that stuff that was with it. Blue is still my favorite color. I don't know if the other reason that uh, blue is my favorite color is because it was the contrast of red, which was my sister's favorite color. Now, red was a color that was hard for me to be fond of, and I'm not exactly sure. I believe there's a couple reasons why red was not one of my fond colors, and, and one was probably because it was my sister's, and I always had to be different than my sister. If that was her favorite, it wasn't my favorite. If that was, if that was her favorite color, it wasn't going to be my favorite color because she's a girl, I'm a boy, and I've got to make sure that we keep all that separated, and I was the tough guy and so I don't know if it was also maybe red was a, a hard color for me to be fond of because uh, in elementary school my teachers would would take my homework and they would color it with a, a red red uh, pen and and uh, uh, as if I didn't do enough writing already that they just had to add to that and of course it marked all of the the errors and pointed out all the incorrect answers Red was maybe even another uh, a problem of being a, a red, being a favorite color is because there were some classes that they would even use this whole system of a traffic light to try and represent, uh, you know, or to, to uh, uh, just to encourage good behavior. And, and the whole traffic light is that everybody, everybody's name would start in the green. And then if you had to get a warning, your name would go into the yellow. And then if that warning wasn't effective, your name would go into the red. And the red was not good. You'd be punished. And, and you'd come home from school and it's not mom asking you, hey, did you have a good day? It's mom asking, hey, were you in the red? That's the, uh, the question of whether or not. And so this whole red thing is, is, is not the, the most fond color for me. And then I became, of course, uh, managing my, my own checkbook and realizing in the warning that if red shows up on the, on the, uh, the account and stuff, that's not good. Red is a color that can scare you. I mean, when you think about the things that are red, you know, everything from the red flag on the beach to the red stop sign at the traffic or at the four-way, that red is a color that grabs your attention, and the purpose of it is to cause your attention to be, to be at a place that if you don't abide or take heed or take warning to what that red is representing, it might come with a consequence as a result. If you don't honor the red flag that's on the beach, it could be a consequence with the danger in the, in the waves. If you don't honor the stop sign, the red stop sign at the four-way or the intersection, it could be a consequence that's there. And red is one of those colors that grab our attention and give us warning but as a christian and a follower of jesus christ red is also the color of the blood of jesus that in this regard it of course grabs our attention and the blood of jesus uh, of course was the payment that was paid and understand put this in, in together that when for us that with the color red is a, is a color of redemption a color of hope and it literally was a payment that jesus paid it was the price that he paid for you and i to be taken from sin and to be redeemed and given new life literally on the cross when jesus bled his blood and and poured out his blood for us it it was a payment to buy us back. 
The question we're asking over the next couple weeks is this. Are we living in the red? Are we living in the red of our deficit? Or are we living in the red of his provision? Are we living in the red of, of our deficit and not having? Or are we living in the provision that God has for us? The financial life. When it comes to our financial life, whose red are you living in? What is it in our lives? It was a Pentecost Sunday at a, at a church somewhere down in the south, and they got a little excited down there for their, their services, and it was Pentecost Sunday, and, and everybody was excited on this Pentecost Sunday. As they came into the doors, the ushers were handing out red carnations just as a, as a symbol to celebrate this special day on Pentecost Sunday. There was one individual, one lady who was excited more than anybody else, so she got as many carnations as she could get, and she sat on the front row, and they read the story in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when, when the, the, what was like a mighty rushing wind came into the house, and, and the, what was like tongues of fire fell on everybody that was gathered in the house and the pastor then began to preach and he started the sermon and he said the spirit of the Lord is upon us to which she got excited she stood up she started shouting and she said and it was like the sound of a mighty rushing wind and she threw a carnation onto the altar and she got excited she sat down a little later and the pastor continued he said Again, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. She got excited again, and she said, and it's like tongues of fire that fell on everybody, and she threw another carnation, and she's excited for the message and everything that's coming along. As she sat down, she, he simply said to her, he said, Sister, yes, it was tongues of fire and the, the wind that blew, and he said, and we are excited. So the next time, instead of throwing another flower, would you please throw your pocketbook? She said, Pastor... You just calm the winds and put the fire out. <laughs> Isn't it that way? Sometimes we, we separate the financial part of our life from our spiritual life. That in reality, they are together. That your, your spiritual life is affected by your financial life. The way you manage your money and the way that money is either managing you or you managing your money is an indicator of our spiritual life and what's going on. It tells us or it determines what we believe or who we trust or what we're looking forward to. The title this morning as we begin this series, the, the title this morning is Money is Like Water. I mean, know that it seems to go that way too. It's, once it's gone, you can't just pull it back out of the ground. Once you, it, 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 water is not that thing that when you spill it, you don't just grab your cup and swap and uh, just uh, sponge it up and drink it again. No, it's on the ground. It's gone. You can't get it back. Money is like water. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 3 that tells us what to do when we find ourselves in need of it. When we find ourselves in need of it, and I want you to know every single one of us need it. We all have need for money. Money is not this thing that is considered so evil. In fact, the, the Bible doesn't call money evil. The love of money is evil. But I want to look at this story here, and I want to just look in 2 Kings chapter 3, and real quickly, there's this story of three kings, and the story of three kings who come together, and the three kings come to a place where all of them have different reasons for coming to the same place, but they're all in the same situation, and they're at the same need. So here's what I want to do. I want to just read through this and summarize so you can catch the heart of this story. And we're going to take a look at what it is when we find ourselves in need of water or money. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria. 
In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as bad as his mother and father, who were Ahab and Jezebel. So he wasn't that bad. He was bad, but he wasn't that bad. But still, nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who, was, who had made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, who is the enemy, he was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and of, and, and of wool and 100,000 rams. I, that's pretty expensive back then. 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So the king Jehoram went out to Samaria, went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against this man? And the king, Jehoshaphat, replied, I will go up. I am as you are. I am, my people are your people. My horses are your horses. Then he said, which way should we go up? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the two of them along with the king of Edom and they marched on that roundabout route seven days and there was no water for the army nor the animals that followed them. Here are these three kings on this journey. The one was uh, it started by, by Jehoram. He then asked Jehoshaphat to come along with him and on the way they pick up the king of Edom. And so these three kings are going on this journey to attack Moab, who is the enemy. But along the way, they reach a place where they are without water. And the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called us three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shapheth, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. I love the fact that he uses this description to point out who Elisha is. He says he is a servant of Elijah, but what did he do? He poured water out on his hands. What were they without of? They were without water. And he even makes a distinction. He says, hey, yeah, there's a guy that his job was pouring water out on the hand of Elisha, he, or Elijah. He was a servant. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I done? What have I to do with you? Here's Elisha the prophet now. He says to the king of Israel, to Jehoram, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and your mother, Ahab and Jezebel. Go to them. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called the three of us together here to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not even look at you or have anything to do with you. Basically what, what Elisha is saying, Elisha is saying, If it weren't for Jehoshaphat being with you, I wouldn't even give you any t attention. I wouldn't even give you the time of day. But he says, Because Jehoshaphat is there. And Elisha said, now bring me a musician. And it happened that the musician, when the musician played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, you'll not see rain, yet this valley will be filled with much water, so that you, your cattle, your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hands. 
And you shall attack every fortified city, every choice area, every tree will be cut down, and the water will be stopped up. Let me, pair, let me take it from here. This is then, the Bible says, continuing, that when they made their morning sacrifice, at that time, they looked out over the valley, and water had miraculously appeared in the water. The Moabites are now coming because they heard that these three kings were coming to attack. The Moabites come, and as they climb the ridge, they look out, and they see water where they weren't expecting to see water but from where they were the bible says the way the sun was hitting the water it looked like blood to the moabites it looked like blood to them so the moabites said hey these three kings must have attacked each other they must have got into a fight they got mad at each other they killed each other so let's go take their plunder and the bible says that as the moabites went down they thought it was the blood of these three these three armies but in fact, it wasn't the blood of the three armies. It was the miraculous provision of God, the water that was there. And the Bible says that the Moabites were attacked by Israel, by Judah, and by Edom. And the Bible says that they took them and completely destroyed. It says they stopped up their water, they took down their good trees, and they, 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 uh, they, they littered their property with stones. What's all that mean? It means they not only had water for their need, but God gave them an added blessing that he gave them victory over their enemy. Father, this morning, I pray that you'd give us understanding, help this word to come alive. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to capture, Lord, not only to capture, but God, to, to act upon the truth of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's this story. You may have to go back and read it again to catch all of it, but the basis of it is three kings come together to fight Moab. In the process, they reach a dry place. They need water. Water is kind of like money. We've already said that. Water is one of those things. It's a necessity. You've got to have water to survive. You've got to have water to make it. They're at a place, and if they don't have water, they can't make it. You realize that in our day, in the time that we live, you need money to make it. We understand. You might say, oh, well, Jason, that's not spiritual enough. You need to say, you need Jesus to make it. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand money comes from Jesus, but when was the last time you went into the grocery store? You went to the, the, the clerk, and as you're ready to pay, she says to you how much it'll be, and you say, oh, I have Jesus and I'm sure she looked at you and smiled us oh, okay then go on no yes we have Jesus but he provides he gives means he is the one that provides what we have need of and in our lives we have need of money this this money of course is is something that we that we rely or, or not something that we rely on but something that is important and necessary in our everyday Money is not something that is evil. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, it's the love of money that is evil. Money is not evil. Money is necessary. If you're going to pay your bills, if you're going to have resources, if you're going to have groceries, if you're going to have those things, these resources are necessary. But here's the cool thing. We serve the God who can give us the money to get it, but we also serve the God that when you need manna, he doesn't have to give you money for it. He can even just make the manna for you. That's the kind of God that we serve. He is a God who is able to provide for whatever needs it is that we have in our life. You and I need money like these kings needed water. We need resources. They had the need, they, had, they were in the same need, but for three different reasons. And let me just tell you real quick the three reasons why these three kings were there. The first one is Jehoram. Jehoram's the one that initiates this. It's his idea. Hey, let's go out and attack Moab. Because Moab, the king of Moab, used to give my dad 100,000 100, lambs and 100,000 rams, and he quit doing that when my dad died. You see, this king wanted to get out of his deal, and the moment the dad died, he thought that's his chance to get out of it. 
And now here's Jehoram left with that. And Jehoram, instead of inquiring of the Lord, Jehoram says, I'm upset that he's not giving me more. He's not giving me what is mine. And so because he's greedy, he immediately just goes and begins a plan to attack this individual or to attack this place. And the first king is identified by greed. The reason he went to that battle was because of his greed. He wanted more. The second king, Jehoshaphat, shows up for another reason. Jehoshaphat shows up because Jehoram invited him to come. Jehoram said, hey, we're kind of like brothers here, so would you go with me? Let's go and attack Moabite, the king of Moab. Jehoshaphat says these words. This is his reply in verse 7, I believe. He says this word. He says, I am here to serve. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. I'm here to help you. And so Jehoshaphat literally comes along, and he's along for the journey, not because of his greed, but because of his generosity. You see, Jehoshaphat had a spirit of generosity that he was willing to share. He said, my people are your people. My horses are your horses. Where there are some people who are like, get your own people and get your own horses. These are mine. But Jehoshaphat had a generosity about him. And so because of his generosity, he's along. And now they pick up along the way the king of Edom. How'd he get there? The first king has greed. That drives him. The second king has generosity. That's why he's there. The third king is Edom. And Edom's a tag along. Edom doesn't have an option. Edom is obligated to go. You know why? Because Edom's dad a long time ago was Esau. Did you ever hear of Esau? Raise your hand if you heard of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. Jacob and Esau, of course, were brothers. Their dad was Isaac. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 27. But Esau is where Edom comes from. What happened in Genesis 27 when Esau comes in from the fields? He's famished. He's tired because he was out hunting. He comes into the field, and there is Jacob with a, with a, a bowl of stew on the table. And he says to Jacob, hey, let me have that soup in Genesis 27. You can write it down, read it later. And he says to him, Jacob says, no got to pay me for it all right what do you want I want your birthright I want your rights to every blessing and Esau in that moment because of his instant gratification Esau says very well the birthright isn't worth anything to me give me the soup you can have my birthright and because of that you read in Genesis 27 the Bible says this about the king he says to uh, to Esau you will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. Edom is there because of Esau, and basically the only reason Edom is there is because he's in debt. Isn't it something that when we sell or when we take for things for an immediate gratification and we pay more than we should really pay, and it's not wisdom in our part, we find ourselves in debt. So now here are three kings in this same place needing water for three different reasons. The first one, because he was greedy. The second one, because he was generous. And the third one, because he was in debt. Or his great-great-great-great-grandfather, whatever it was, put him in debt. And here you now have these three people that are in this place needing water. The response of generosity, the response of greed. If we're going to change the financial situation of our lives, we've got to understand the part that God is going to look at and realize that here it is, Elisha is, this, is the prophet. And what does Elisha say to these three kings? Elisha says, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even have anything to do with you. If it weren't for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even give you any attention. What's Jehoshaphat represent? Generosity. I want you to know God will not come to your financial rescue if you are strapped with greed and debt 
but only if there's a spirit of generosity. Only then will he take care of whatever your greed has got you into, whatever your debt has gotten into. But when you have a spirit of generosity, he will come to your attention. He will come to your aid. He will be at a place because of your spirit of generosity. He will bring blessing and he'll honor you. When the first place of generosity comes with this, if we're going to set our, our, our financial life in order, we must be first of all generous towards God. I'm glad some of you said amen. It's through a word called tithing. And this word tithing literally means 10%. To give God 10% of what we receive. Everything that I receive by income. My dad taught me this when I was a little kid. I I used to go, the neighbor would call me over and I would go over to her house and she would give me some change and ask me to run to the store and get her ketchup or whatever she needs. She lived by herself and it was always uh, nothing for me to do that. But she would pay me. She'd pay me like 50 cents every time I'd run down the street. That was a big deal then, I guess. I'm sure if I said to my son, hey, I want you to run down to the store, I'll give you 50 cents. But I went running and running and running. I went to the the store, I came back, and she would give me 50 cents. And when I would come home, dad would say, well, how much did she give you? She gave me 50 cents, and dad would take his change out. And he would go through his change, and he would give me, whether it be five pennies or a nickel, and he would make change from those two quarters for me, so that when I went to church the next day, I would have five cents to put in the offering. And then after church, dad would say, so how much money do you have in your pocket? About 45 cents. So you put the five cents in the offering? Yeah. My dad taught me from the time I was a little kid that I need to give God 10%. Even when my grandparents would send me birthday cards and, and my, my grandparents would, would give us each about $3 in our birthday cards. And when we became teenagers, we got $5 in our birthday card. But I get $3 in my birthday card and dad would give me change because when I was at church, I'd have enough money so that I could give my 10% to God. You see, because tithing is all about honoring God and being generous towards God because it's a generosity to God that says, God, you're the one that was good to me in the first place. You're the one that blessed me and I can't help but give you a portion of what you asked for. And if we're going to set our spiritual or our our financial lives in order, it begins with tithing. Malachi 3.8 or 3, 8 to 10, says this familiar scripture. Maybe, you, maybe you've read it before, but you can write it down and look at it later. But it talks about this question, that if we are not giving our tithe to God, then we are cheating God. I don't know what person in any business sense would make a deal with someone who rips them off. How are we to expect then that God's going to pour out a blessing on us if we don't honor him with the 10% that he's asked for? It belongs to him anyway. I, I remember dad one time, he used this illustration. This was, my, my dad would preach all the time to me. My dad pulled out a couple M&Ms and he poured out some M&Ms and he gave them all to me. He said, he said I just gave you all the M&Ms. I'm like, oh cool, I got all the M&Ms. And then dad says to me, can I have some? And I said, yeah. And I gave him one. Dad said, that's all I get? Well, I want to have some more left. And dad would say, well, where'd you get them? From you? Well, then if they're mine, I'm just giving them to you, right? Yeah. And dad would say, well, then I think you need to give me 10 of them if there's 100. Because dad would always tell me, those weren't yours. Those were mine that I gave you. And you're not in possession of them. I gave them to you. And that is something you're then going to give back to me. And we're going to be in this relationship that when you honor me with 10, you better believe next time, I'll give you another pack of M&M's. That you might say, I got rid of my 90 M&M's and dad would tell me, hey, that's no problem because I'm dad. I can go buy you a whole nother pack. 
that when you honor me with your tithe. Who does it belong to? Who is it that is in control of, of our lives and what it is that we have? Let, let me give us, give us some things of why tithing is important real quick. Here's why tithing is important. Number one, when we tithe, it puts God first. It puts God first. What was one of, the, one of the commandments that was given to the Israelites early on? It was saying, you shall have no other gods before me, not even the ones you can buy. You shall have no other gods before me. And so when I give God a tithe, when I give him 10% of my resources and 10% of my, of my weekly income or however it is that I get paid or however it is that I get resources, however it is that I profit, whatever it is that comes into my lap of blessing, that God blesses me, when I say to God, here is 10%, when I'm turning that back to God, I'm saying to God, God, I'm honoring you first. Right off the bat, you get first dibs. This is yours and all 10% of this goes to you. It belongs to you. I'm putting you first. How many know that that's God's word? And when you do God's word, you can't help but find God's blessing. And it's a matter of putting God first. I'm saying to God, you, and you might be in a place you say, I can't afford it. You've got to really ask, we've got to really ask ourselves, is it that I can't afford it? Or is it that I have chosen other things over God? And the reality is I've chosen other things over God. I've chosen other, I've made other things more valuable and other things more important. The second thing, that when we tithe, it prepares a way for God's blessing. Here's what it says, Eli, Elisha said to him, the Lord says this, dig a ditch. How many know that when they were digging a ditch, Elisha was saying, get ready for something. When they were filling that place with ditches, and there, were, there would have been a large crowd of them. So it wasn't like a crew of five people going on in the ditch digging crew. It was everybody, get a shovel and dig a ditch. There were enough people, and the moment they would have shoveled, they probably would have shoveled just a portion, but it would have filled that whole valley with, with ditches. And because of that, the Bible, uh, of course, Paul, or, or Elisha, why, throw Paul in there, he's, he's important. Uh, he's in the New Testament, but he belongs in there somewhere, right? <laughs> Elisha. Elisha tells them to dig ditches, and by digging the ditches, they were doing something in the natural to prepare for the supernatural. God can't bless you with the supernatural until you've honored him with the natural. It's what you prepare in the natural that gives way for God to bless you with the supernatural. You've got to dig the ditches before he can fill it with water. You've got to honor him. And you say, well, I've got this portion. He didn't tell you to dig the whole ditch. He told you to do your portion. There's a whole army of people that when we all take care of digging our ditches and our portion, we're able to see the kingdom of God expand. George Barna put out, a, put out a report years ago, and he said, if all the Christians in America who profess to be Christians, if everyone in America who profess to be Christians would honor God with just their 10%, no more, just their 10%, that the church in America would have more money than the government to pay for welfare. The church in America would have more resources to do ministry and to do above and beyond more than what the government can receive through taxes. Because here's the thing, that when we honor God and we give to God, his economy is much greater than man's. And when we seek God first, he creates blessing that nothing can hold back. He says, I'll cause it to be pressed down and running over, shaken together. I'll make room for more in your life that when we put God first, it prepares a way for God's blessing. Here's number three. When I tithe, I practice faithfulness. When I'm tithing, I practice faithfulness. There's a familiar scripture, and Jesus, of course, tells us that if we cannot be trusted in the little things, if we're not faithful in the little things, we'll not be at a place to be trusted with more.
Thanks for listening. Tune in again next week.